This episode of Historium is brought to you by Blueberry. Not the fruit, the podcast hosting service. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Well, now is the time, and Blueberry is what you should be using to host that podcast. Blueberry is the gold standard for podcast hosting and provides accurate stats, your own WordPress website, and an easy-to-use format for you to get your podcast out into the world. And right now, you can get your first month free. That's right, free. All you have to do is go to orbitaljigsaw.com history. That's orbitaljigsaw.com history. And start your journey into podcasting right. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you all know that this episode was picked by Historium's per-episode patrons. If you want to have a say in what topics this podcast covers, you can donate at patreon.com historium. There's been a lot of talk lately about Elon Musk, SpaceX, and humanity's possible voyage to Mars. My question to you is if that was feasible, would you buy a ticket? Knowing all of the risks of traveling to a new world, would you take that leap? Regardless of your answer, I think it's a good analogy for what the first European explorers of the New World were faced with, crossing an unfathomable distance to start anew in a strange and mysterious place. Safety was definitely not guaranteed, but danger, on the other hand, was. This episode will explore an English colony that became the most enduring cold case in American history. I'm Jake Barton, welcome to Historium, episode 25, the Lost Colony. July 22, 1587. John White looked out at the shore, just barely visible through the morning fog. He had been made governor of this voyage to the New World because he had been here before, but the mainland still looked as alien as it had the first time he made landfall there. John looked to his pilot, the renowned Portuguese navigator Simon Fernandez, and asked if he recognized this part of the shoreline. Fernandez assured the governor that he knew exactly where they were. White looked upon the colonists on the deck below. Many looked towards the shore with faces colored with excitement and nervousness, eager or apprehensive to create a new society for themselves. John White did not enjoy the feeling of being responsible for 115 colonists' lives, many of them women and children, including his own pregnant daughter, Eleanor. But for all of them, he wore his stoic face well. He had been charged with leading this expedition to the New World by his good friend, Sir Walter Raleigh, a controversial figure who had enough sway in England to fund this expedition. Later that day, Fernandez gave the signal that they had reached Roanoke Island. Their goal was to pick up the garrison of soldiers left at the old settlement from the previous expedition, and then head up into the Chesapeake Bay area to found a more permanent colony there. White and a few dozen men began loading up boats to head inland. With him was Monteo, a Native American from the Croatan tribe, he had gone to England with the colonists of the failed first expedition and had introduced corn, tobacco, and potatoes to England. Monteo had also converted to Christianity, as his tribal religion shared many similarities with it, including heaven, hell, and an eternal soul. He had become one of John White's closest allies and friends. They made landfall in late afternoon. The memories of the old colony and all of their missteps began flooding back to White. He led the landing party to the old settlement eager to see the grizzled English troops and the stories they would tell. A scout called out towards the old colony. No response. The door to the primitive fort was wide open. Upon entering the palisades, a feeling of fear crept over White and the rest of the colonists. 
They could barely see the remnants of a fire pit in the center of the settlement. White called out to anyone in the colony, but the silence that followed confirmed his fears. Roanoke had been abandoned. The colonists eventually found one British soldier, now only a skeleton. They set up camp despite the looming thoughts of the tragedy that had befallen the men who used to inhabit this place. John White sent a group back to the boats to get word to the ships that things had not ended the way they had hoped. White, a skilled artist, took out his notebook and began sketching the colony as it appeared. Monteo began searching for clues as to what happened to the English garrison. As the sun began to fall beyond the horizon, the group the governor had sent back to the ships returned, but with the rest of the colonists, saying that Fernandez had made the order to make landfall here and re-establish the Roanoke colony, as opposed to starting a new colony further north. Night was falling on this strange land where the previous group had clearly been captured or killed, so despite his pilot's mutinous action, White gave in and ordered the colony to be set up where the previous one had been, right where they stood. He framed this as his own decision, of course, but his relationship with Fernandez never recovered. The rest of the 115 colonists entered the settlement and began setting up the colony by torchlight. Governor John White did not sleep that night. The next morning, the colonists awoke ready to begin building up their new home. Governor White oversaw repairs to the timbers and the palisades, building up existing structures and arranging their supplies, while his daughter, Eleanor Dare, struggled with morning sickness. Monteo returned to the Croatan tribe to the south, assuring White that his tribe would be an ally against any future foe. White sent out scouts to the other nearby tribes and established relations with all of them but one, the same tribe that had a skirmish with the previous group of English settlers. That tribe was a major reason why the first settlement had failed. Days turned to weeks as the colony was built up. Each day was full of productive tasks and hard work. For White, things were going fairly well. But each hard day's work expended plenty of calories. Calories that had to be replaced. Calories they got from their supplies, which were now beginning to dwindle. Governor White continued to monitor the food stores closely, but other than a possible food shortage, things were going pretty well. August 22, 1587. Exactly one month since the colony's founding. The colonists gathered around the makeshift chapel in the center of the colony. They heard the wails of Eleanor Dare from inside. John White stepped out of the chapel and closed the door behind him, looking nervous. Within a few minutes, his daughter's cries were replaced by his granddaughter's cries. Governor White hugged his son-in-law Ananias Dare as he came out to announce to the crowd of colonists that he was now a father of a healthy baby girl. A few hours later, as the sun peaked over the horizon, baby Virginia Dare was christened in the same chapel she was born in. That was the kind of thing you didn't delay back then. Virginia was the first English-born child in the New World, and her birth helped convince the colonists that this colony would, in fact, succeed. Despite their otherwise grim circumstances, Governor White was filled with hope for their new home in this new world. But that's not how some native tribes saw it. A few weeks after Virginia Dare was born, things started to look worse. A man by the name of George Howe was gathering crabs when he was killed by members of a local tribe. After English scouts found his body, they brought it back to Roanoke. Governor White ordered that no one venture outside the colony alone. And the food situation? It was getting worse. White explained to the colonists that when he was here for the first expedition, water was more plentiful, and there was far more rainfall in general. 
but that didn't help the colonists deal with what was one of the most severe droughts in the past hundred years. Food that they had brought from England that was supposed to last for months was lasting just weeks. One of the administrators did the math and reported to Governor White that at the rate they were going, they would be completely out of food sometime in the middle of winter. Governor White had a tough decision to make. Only one ship from the voyage remained near the colony. The others had gone to try their luck at pirating Spanish treasure fleets. White and a council of colonists decided that they had to send a group back to England to request more supplies. White was the only one there with enough clout to convince Sir Walter Raleigh to send another expedition. According to White's journal entries, he was very reluctant to leave the colony, and especially his new granddaughter. But the colonists pleaded with White to make the return voyage. So he did. They made an agreement that if there were any struggles, and they were forced by either natives or Spanish to leave, that they would carve a Maltese cross in one of the wooden palisades. The return trip suffered misfortune from the beginning. Upon leaving, several of the crew were injured trying to retrieve the anchor, and poor weather and weak winds slowed the voyage and many died of scurvy along the way. But after a few weeks, the ship made landfall on the western coast of Ireland. As John White was making his way to London, he heard the English townsfolk talk of the escalating war with Spain. As he traveled, these warnings became more severe as he overheard talk of the invincible Spanish Armada approaching English shores backed by the power of the Pope himself. When White met with Sir Walter Raleigh, he told of the plight of the Roanoke colonists, claiming that they were only one supply shipment away from making it through the winter and thriving as a colony. Raleigh did everything he could to mount a return voyage, but he was eventually overruled by the Queen herself. All English ships were forced to stay and defend the English mainland against the coming Spanish Armada. I imagine John White staring at the Atlantic, wondering if his daughter and granddaughter were okay, telling himself over and over that they had to have survived the winter. Almost a full year passed, and John White was exhausting all of his options of making his way back to the New World. But in 1588, he secured the use of two non-military vessels that were older and deemed expendable by the Crown for the Roanoke expedition. But they were ill-equipped for the massive trip, and the reason the ships were allowed to leave England was the same reason they inevitably failed to complete the voyage. They were soon caught off guard by French pirates and were taken quickly, as they had no real means of defending themselves. Having been robbed of all their supplies, they were forced to turn back. John White must have again looked to the westward skies and apologized to his daughter and granddaughter. He was trying. John White was starting to believe he was cursed. Around this time, he wrote in his journal that he believed himself to be born under an unlucky star. Finally, in the spring of 1590, almost three years since John White left the Roanoke colony to retrieve supplies, he was able to fund a full-on rescue expedition. The voyage proved incredibly difficult, with strong winds knocking them off course and poor weather slowing them down the whole way. But eventually they arrived at the outer banks of what we now call South Carolina. The tides were thrashing something awful and gale-force winds pummeled the ships. John looked into the storm, trying to triangulate where the colony was, where his now three-year-old granddaughter would be. Despite recommendations from the ship's captain, John White ordered them to make landfall. The storm worsened as the men rowed their boats towards the shore. One boat even sunk, but eventually they landed on Roanoke Island. John White took off towards the colony. When he arrived, his worst fears, the culminations of years of nightmares and self-blame, became true. 
the colony was abandoned. Rain fell in through broken roofs, flashes of lightning revealed overgrown vines on most of the fort. It's hard to imagine what was going through the ex-governor's mind as he searched through the colony that he used to lead, searching for a granddaughter that he never really knew. He looked furiously for a Maltese cross or any sign of struggle. He found neither, but he did find something else. On a post of the wooden fort were eight letters, C-R-O-A-T-O-A-N, Croatoan. John immediately recognized it as close to the name of the tribe to the south. At this point, other sailors were showing up through the storm. John White told them that they had to prepare to head south immediately. But the sailors refused, saying that seven men had drowned on the way in, and the currents and wind were too strong. They had already lost three of their four anchors, and they could not afford to lose the last if they wanted to survive. White desperately pleaded with the men, yelling through the wind that the colonists had to be close, but the men said they were leaving with or without him. White looked to the south so close now, but he too went back to the ship. They returned to England in October 1590. John White never recovered from the loss of the colony. He wrote in his journal that he must hand over the fate of the colonists and his family to the merciful help of the Almighty, whom I most humbly ask to help and comfort them. He worked as a reclusive artist and cartographer for Sir Walter Raleigh in his estate in Ireland for the next few years. It is recorded that John White believed that Eleanor Dare, Virginia Dare, and the rest of the colonists were still alive until his dying day. What happened to the lost colony of Roanoke has become one of America's oldest and most interesting mysteries. There is absolutely no conclusive evidence as to what happened to the colonists, but there is no lack of possible theories. An obvious idea is that they were simply wiped out by local Native American tribes. The Roanoke colonists had several tribal allies, but had had their fair share of tribal enemies as well. In fact, Chief Powhatan, whom you may recognize as Pocahontas' father, later claimed to the Jamestown settlers that it was he who had taken and killed the colonists at Roanoke. This was a widely held belief for quite some time. The case seemed open and shut. However, deeper analysis into the record showed that Powhatan said he slaughtered around 15 men, which was either a remnant of the whole colony or more likely, the garrison of men left behind from the original colony that John White later found missing. Another theory is that the Spanish, who were at this time very much at war with England, found Roanoke and simply wiped out the colonists. This would not have been out of the ordinary at all, but Spanish records show them searching for the Roanoke colony in the year 1600, a full 10 years after John White discovered the colony missing. In 1998, climatologists examined cypress tree ring cores to determine weather patterns and precipitation rates from the past. By looking at the rings from some of the oldest trees, they found that there was a severe drought between the years 1587 and 1589, the exact three years that John White had been gone. This drought would have been very difficult to live through, and this continued to push the narrative that the settlers sought refuge elsewhere. A new piece of evidence was unveiled in 2011. An old map made during the time period had two spots on it. It had been covered up by fabric, thereby making corrections to it. This was standard procedure at the time, so no one really thought anything of it. But because the map was of the Roanoke region, researchers decided to place that map over a light box. 
Under one of the patches, they found a dark box with strange looking corners, a common portrayal of a fort. The covered fort could possibly be the new fort that the colonists made after they had moved inland. However, the location of the now 400-year-old fort is right under a proposed golf course. Negotiations are still being made to see if that location will become a dig site or a putting green and sand trap. Nowadays, the most prevailing theory is that the colonists simply integrated into the various Native American tribes. And there is quite a bit of evidence for this. Most historians believe the colonists split up, either by design or from a resulting disagreement amongst them. Some heading north, some heading south, and some inland. In 1607, Spanish explorers to the north of the Lost Colony made a map that noted that they found some of the natives with fairer skin and noticed some two-story stone houses amongst native villages. The map states that these fair-skinned men came from Runok, which sounds a whole awful lot like our Lost Colony. Other colonists were thought to have headed south, an obvious reason being the Croatan tribe was to the south of Roanoke, and Croatoan was what John White observed carved into a post in the abandoned colony. The colonist's native guide, Manteo, was from the Croatan tribe, and that relationship would surely play a part into getting into the tribe's good graces. Lastly, we have good reason to believe that some colonists went inland. Several accounts from the later successful colony at Jamestown report seeing European captives in various tribal settlements. Other accounts suggest that the Roanoke colonists may have integrated more effectively. English explorer John Lawson writes in his book that on several occasions, he encountered several Indians with blonde hair and blue eyes. He also reported that they knew many English words. French trappers in the region reported seeing fair-skinned Indians in the region quite frequently. The case for the Roanoke colonists eventually integrating into Native American tribes is a strong one. As far as archaeological evidence, though, there's not much of anything. Due to shoreline erosion, which is the result of climate change and environmental factors, the shore of Roanoke Island has been pushed back about a thousand feet in the past 400 years, meaning that the location of the colony itself may be forever lost to time. But the colonists themselves might not be. DNA investigations have now begun in earnest, trying to find a link between the Roanoke settlers and native peoples. So John White, who never stopped believing that his daughter and granddaughter were in fact alive, may have been right after all. Historium is written and produced by me, Jake Barton, and is a proud member of the Orbital Jigsaw Network. If you're a fan of the show, check it out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Historium merch is available at orbitaljigsaw.com. If you would like to help Historium episodes be longer, better, and more frequent, please donate at patreon.com historium. Every single bit counts. And don't forget about that promo code. If you are interested in starting a podcast yourself, you can get one free month of hosting through Blueberry. Just go to orbitaljigsaw.com history to get that one free month.